Welcome to the Bloomberg PL Podcast. I'm Pim Fox, along with my co-host, Lisa Abramowitz. Each day, we bring you the most important, noteworthy, and useful interviews for you and your money, whether you're at the grocery store or the trading floor. Find the Bloomberg PL Podcast on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, and Bloomberg.com. Bank earnings. J.P. Morgan Chase, Citigroup, they top estimates. Wells Fargo misses. Here to tell us everything about them is Charles Peabody. He is the president of Portalis Partners. Charles, a pleasure to hear your voice. Tell us your impression about the results of three of these three banks and then maybe extrapolate into some of the other uh, earnings that we're going to receive. Sure. I mean, there's a wide dispersion in the results. I mean, J.P. Morgan had a very solid, very robust quarter. Um, City was sort of weak, and, and Wells Fargo was disappointing. Um, but on average, what you're getting out of this quarter is maybe 2% revenue growth year over year, which is, I think, pretty anemic given, you know, higher interest rates, deregulation, tax cuts, 4% GDP, et cetera. And I think that's the disappointment here. Okay, so uh, what could they have done to show, and what does this mean? I'm sorry, say that again, Lisa? What, what does this mean for it to be, for, for, for growth to be more anemic given all of the positive head, uh, positive yeah, tailwinds? I mean, I mean I, what does that mean I, to you? I, I think that's why we've had multiple compression over the last six months. In other words, we had this multiple expansion last year when earnings really weren't that robust. We're getting, you know, a better bottom line earnings, but not a better revenue picture. So the formula that the banking industry is using is taking low single-digit revenue growth, turning it into mid-single-digit pre-tax income growth through positive operating leverage and benign credit costs, and then taking that mid-single-digit pre-tax income growth and turning it into double-digit net income from tax cuts and share buybacks. But the latter two items are financial engineering techniques, and no one's going to pay a premium for that. You need better revenue growth. How are they expected to do that, Charles? Is the business of banking changed, and are these banking's res- banks responding to it? Well, uh, I, I think revenue growth is going to continue to disappoint. And, and so we're in what I call end-of-cycle economic dynamics, and, and that means you start to look at the second derivative. And the second derivative means what's happening to the rate of growth of the key line items. So revenues probably are going to slow. Credit costs are going to pick up. And expenses can't be cut anymore. They're being well you know, maintained, but they can't be cut. So I think you're at peak profitability. Well, Charles, just to follow up on this, then, you know, you've, I'm sure you have seen and, and read about all of the different financial technology companies that have either raised money or have uh, really created a whole other financial uh, system in parallel to the traditional banking system. Is all of that uh, market value value that the banks could have taken for themselves if they had been more entrepreneurial? Well, they, they are making a push. If you're talking about digital um, banking, they, they are making, and that's where a lot of the expense growth is, is related to, um, is their technological investments. Um, so banks are, are trying to um, keep up with the non-banks. I think over a full business cycle, you're going to see a greater fallout in the non-banks than you will in the banking industry. And that's maybe where they start to regain some of the market share they've lost in the non-banks. That's fascinating, by the way. 
that because a lot of people have said that the risk has moved to the shadow banking system. So perhaps uh, when that risk manifests itself and the shadow banking system ends up getting a little bit more afraid, then the big banks can come back in and take market share. I'm just wondering, I want to dig a little bit more into the nitty gritty, particularly with Wells Fargo, uh, because its shares are getting uh, penalized more than others down. Well, actually, uh, up from the uh, the earlier losses, about down nearly 2% now. Um, do you think that we're seeing a bottom for this bank, or is this sort of a signal of more pain ahead? Well, from a fundamental point of view, uh, I don't. Um, I, I've been on the side of the equation that the revenues are going to be the big disappointment. And revenues this quarter, if you, you back out some non-recurring items, we're down 4.5% year over year. Um, you know, they'll execute on their expenses. Credit costs will creep up, but the revenue is where they're going to disappoint. Um, now, that said, one thing I want to um, differentiate is, is between the fundamentals of these banks and the stocks. The stocks have undergone tremendous multiple compression over the last six months. I think there's going to be a summer bounce, but that bounce is probably within a developing bear market where the January highs were the highs. When you say developing bear market, developing bear market in all stocks or financial stocks? Well, financials specifically, they tend to underperform in the last 12 months of a bull market. And I think that's kind of where we are in the economic cycle, last 12 months of a bull market. Are there any... Bank stocks have always underperformed in that period of time. Right. Are there any specific bank stocks that you believe will uh, perform uh, better than others in, in this uh, perhaps relief rally that you describe? Yeah, I think J.P. Morgan had a very solid result, and, and um, you know the fundamental line fundamentals um, can be bought. I think it portends well, and I've been recommending on a trading basis buying Goldman Sachs. Um, so I think you're going to get some kind of rebound in the capital markets part of the business over the summer. I mean, if you look at the pipeline for um, M&A activity and for underwriting, it's very strong, and and that's where you saw the big beat this quarter. Uh, um, was on investment banking. Are you saying that you think that there's going to be an econ economic down uh, downturn within the next 12 months? I think that's what the stocks are telling you. Um, I mean, if you look at the bank stocks, they've underperformed. I'm, I'm talking about the large cap money center and, and even the GSIB regional banks like PNC and U.S. Bank Corp and Wells Fargo. They, they've underperformed the last 6, 12, and 18 months now. If you, if you were to do on Bloomberg, you know, that comp function, equity, you know, Citigroup equity comp, and, and look at how it's performed. It's been an 18-month underperformance now. So I'm wondering just whether this is using financials as another proxy for the yield curve, whether people are looking at the fact that the yield curve is compressing and that's what's driving st uh, bank stocks down, and both of those things are taken as the same sign. I mean, is that is that kind of what you're seeing right now? Yeah, but, you know, everyone seems to be fascinated with the twos, tens part of the yield curve. I think the short end is the more important fundamentally. I can understand twos, tens being a psychological importance because of the implication of a recession. But fundamentally, the short end is more important. And, and towards that end, you know, Bank of Ozarks um, had a very interesting um, conference call yesterday in which they talked about how the deposit beta was now rising faster than the loan beta. That means deposit rates are rising faster than loan yields are rising, and that's squeezing the NIM, and that's what usually happens at end-of-cycle periods. The NIM, the net interest margin. 
Correct. So yeah. when I talk about rate of growth, this quarter, as I said, you're going to get maybe 2% revenue growth on average, but that's going to be composed of mid-single-digit net interest income growth, but flat fee income. And so it's that net interest income that's driving total revenues, but the signs are there that that net interest income growth is going to slow in future quarters as the deposit beta picks up. Yeah. Charles Peabody, thank you so much for being with us. Uh, Charles Peabody, president of Portales Partners in New York. President Trump is gearing up to head over to Helsinki, where he is going to be meeting with Russian President Vladimir Putin. What's he going to talk about? Let's ask that somebody who might have some ideas. Ariel Cohen, senior fellow at the Atlantic Council in Washington, D.C., joining us now. So, Ariel, what do you think he's going to talk about? Well, there are three or four uh, key subjects to discuss. Uh, The United States and Russia... Uh, came to blows in Syria. Actually, the United States uh, troops killed uh, up to 200 Russian um, mercenaries uh, in um, Syria that crossed the red line. This is unprecedented since the worst days of the Cold War. Uh, Secondly, uh, we need to understand, are the Russians going to play ball on getting the Iranians out of Syria? This is what both the United States and uh, our allies, Saudi Arabia and Israel, really want to accomplish. Uh, Furthermore, uh, going into the former Soviet Union, um, we have uh, deep disagreements with Russia about Ukraine and the annexation of the part of Ukraine, which is called the Crimea, the Crimean Peninsula in the Black Sea. Uh, Mr. Trump said that uh, Crimea is Russian because uh, they speak Russian. Well, in fact, they speak Russian because the, the Russian Empire and the Soviet Union ethnically cleansed the Crimea from its indigenous population, the Crimean Tatars, and now are um, pouring in uh, resources to annex it. Uh, Finally, uh, there's plenty of uh, issues to talk about energy and arms control. So if both leaders have the bandwidth and come to serious agreements, I will be the first one to applaud. Unfortunately, judging by previous interactions of Mr. Trump with other world leaders, I'm not so optimistic. Ariel, I wonder if you could speak a little bit about the politics of energy in as much as Ukraine is the big transit point for European imports of Russian gas and oil, and also maybe speak about the relationship between Turkey and its energy needs. Well, you're hitting all the... uh all the nails on their heads in two short questions. Uh, let's go north to south. The Russians are constructing a pipeline called North Stream 2, uh, which will boost its exports of natural gas to Germany and other countries in Europe, like Poland, uh, by 55 billion cubic meters a year. That's a huge amount. Uh, currently, Europe is importing 160 uh, billion cubic meters, so this is an increase by over 30%, putting Germany at 70% of its natural gas coming from Russia if and when this pipeline is uh, finished. So Mr. Trump uh, told the Germans uh, that they'll be better off um, importing liquid, liquefied natural gas from the United States. Theoretically, he is right. LNG is more expensive, and the German business is pushing 
to expand their dependence on Russia. And uh, Frau Merkel is uh, rolling with the blows, and she is dependent on the German business. Uh, furthermore, Ukraine, the Russians are trying to bypass it altogether and stop pumping gas through the Ukrainian system. This is the system that was built during the Soviet days. And for that purpose, they're also building a massive pipeline into Turkey. This is for Turkish internal consumption as well as for uh, re-export to Europe. Uh, They're also maybe building one pipeline um, under the uh, Black Sea, on the bottom of the Black Sea, to Bulgaria. And that's also for exporting to Europe. So there, there's a lot of uh, commerce issues here. I think probably the most salacious point is, uh, will President Trump speak with Vladimir Putin uh, about meddling in U.S. elections, especially heading into the midterms here? Do you think that's going to come up? And, and possibly more importantly, who's going to be in there with him? <laughs> uh, that's uh... A 64 trillion ruble question. Uh, Mr. Trump already uh, made it known that he wants a tete-a-tete. He wants uh, uh, four eyes only uh, in the room, maybe with a translator. And then the question, of course, is it going to be our translator or Russian translator? Uh, If it's going to be only uh, Putin, Trump, uh, and a Russian translator, I would be very nervous. And we would need a record. We would need a tape uh, of that. Well, <laughs> Trump is into tapes, but, isn't it? But this, <laughs> all right, I, I'm going to leave that that comment there. But but I do, it, this sort of raises a bigger issue, which is um, what sort of precedent is there for a U.S. president to meet with the Russian leader who is heading a country that has had been our adversary for a while without sort of some kind of concrete uh, security plan that we know of I mean, how much how much of like a national security concern could this be? Um, I am actually reluctant to get into that um, for different reasons, but I would say that the good governance is transparent. Uh, transparent can be transparent and classified, but it has to be transparent on the highest level uh, of our government. So the national security advisor should be there. Uh, probably his chief of staff may be there. Secretary of Defense may be there, the Secretary of State, at least, just for the starters. Uh, and probably the special assistant of the National Security Council, uh, Dr. Fiona Hill, should be there as well. Uh, but if you want um, a one-on-one meeting, it's possible there are precedents of such meetings with other heads of state. Um, but uh, again, uh, we need to keep a record of that. Uh, it goes into the archives. Uh, and uh, it has to be also analyzed. And I must say, Mr. Putin is always very, very meticulous in preparation to this summit. For example, I was told while uh, visiting Russia that the dossier on Mr. Bush, President Bush the 43rd, uh, ran hundreds of pages, and Mr. Putin, of course, uh, re- read all that, and then he told uh, Bush the story of his secret baptism. And then Bush came famously with this uh, line about looking into Putin's eyes and uh, seeing his soul. Well, it turns out that uh, that may or may not be true about the baptism. And uh, Mr. Putin, of course, by his background, is an intelligence officer. we got to leave it there. Ariel Cohen, thanks very much. Senior fellow at the Atlantic Council speaking about NATO, Russia, and Vladimir Putin, the president of Russia.
While President Donald Trump and uh, British Prime Minister Theresa May hold a press conference that uh, tackles a variety of issues, including shared security concerns and upcoming meetings with uh, President Vladimir Putin uh, of Russia in Helsinki between the president, uh, between Donald Trump and uh, Putin, uh, Brexit uh, also uh, taking up uh, quite a bit of everyone's time and thoughts. And Therese Raphael is our Bloomberg opinion editor covering European politics and economics. And you can follow Therese on on uh, Twitter at Therese Raphael one and she joins us now from London. Therese, uh, just to put aside for a moment the, the news conference uh, that we were able to uh, listen in on, what is the white paper that was published by uh, the government of uh, uh, Theresa May? What does the white paper specifically mean for companies such as Airbus or Rolls-Royce, international companies that do business and are headquartered in the UK? Well, the white paper, as you know, is the first real detailed uh, sort of spelling out of what Theresa May's Brexit would look like. And for companies, it comes as... Um, I would say a little bit of a relief because it means that there will, if it's a, if it's accepted by the EU, now we have to remember this is a opening position in a negotiation and the EU might not accept it, but it's asking for a sort of free trade a, a agreement in good. So it would mean that manufactured products and the supply chains that these companies rely on so much would be um, uninterrupted under the deal that Theresa May is seeking. Now, that may not be the deal that she gets. It also doesn't apply to services and financial services. There's a whole sort of other uh, level of uh, you know, detail and, and complexity to this. But for a lot of companies, I think it's, you know, if, it, if they were to get a Brexit on those terms, um, I think they would at least feel that, it, that you know, that, that things would uh, maybe be not as they were, but they would not be as catastrophically, um, you know, different. And you would you know, find businesses at least happy to accept that. Teresa, one thing that struck a lot of people is that as uh, the UK goes through with these Brexit negotiations, President Trump has inserted himself into this and uh, clearly tried to endear himself to Boris Johnson, had some harsh words for UK Prime Minister uh, Theresa May. And I'm just wondering, you wrote a column talking about why President Trump has sort of a vested interest in this. Can you give uh, us a sense of that? Yeah, I mean, it's just been the most amazing drama because Trump has come to Britain. Even before he came here, he was sort of describing Britain as in turmoil. His ambassador has been giving interviews saying he's, you know, really disappointed in the defeatist attitude of the Brits toward Brexit and why don't they take inspiration from Trump? And, you know, as an American, you might say, well, why does Trump care so much about Brexit? What's in it for him? Um, is it is it a trade deal? Well, you know, the trade deal... <laughs> It's much more important to Britain and to the Brexiters than it is to the United States. Britain, um, you know, only accounts for a small share of America's trade. But Trump does have an interest in Brexit, and he's had that interest from from you know the time of the campaign where he followed it closely. When the Brits did vote against all odds, against all predictions to leave the European Union, Trump immediately uh, latched onto that as a 
you know, vindication of his own populist policies as a sign that, you know, things were going to go well in his campaign. And he was proved right. And he said in the press conference, very interestingly, he said, I think Brexit happened because of immigration. And that was one of the big reasons I got elected as well. Interesting. And uh, so Trump, I think, identifies with the Brexit movement. Brexit is not going well. And the question is whether that sort of prefigures, um, you know, some some shakier times for Trump at home. That, that's fascinating analysis. But sort of counterintuitively, uh, Alex Wayne, who is a, a Bloomberg News uh, reporter and editor, uh, White House team leader, also came on radio earlier today and said that actually, in a sort of counterintuitive uh, result, the more that President Trump beats up on Theresa May, the more she gains support because people in the UK really don't like President Trump. Do you see it the same way? Well, I think that's partly true. I mean, there is a huge, you know, he's hugely unpopular here. However, it's it's interesting because the Brexiters, the really hard Brexiters, you know, they don't really care who's saying it, but they take a lot of heart in what he said. When he says, you know, you've got to close the borders, this is a really simple deal. You just say no to the EU and you walk away and, you know, you take back control. That is, you know, that is that's the song sheet they've been singing from. So they're very happy to, you know, have him come and say that. The Sun had this huge, uh, which is a tabloid newspaper here with a lot of a lot of readers, had a big headline, you know, um, May has wrecked Brexit. U.S. deal is off. And Trump then walked it back in the news conference and said, no, no, you know, Theresa May is a great leader. And um, so I think it could cut both ways. Um, I think it could it, it could redound to May's benefit. But at the same time, you know, Brexiters like that he's saying the same kinds of things they're saying. This is easy. We can do it clean. May's messing it up. So they like that message. Therese, just in about 30 seconds, uh, are assets in Britain on sale? The pound sterling has lost eight and a half percent against the dollar uh, since April. I mean, the, the uncertainty is is clearly weighing on investors' minds. And I think that's going to continue for time. I would say that when, what we're waiting for now is what the EU response is to that white paper. And if it, the response is very negative, then yes, I think assets will be on sale and they'll go cheaper. I want to thank you very much uh, for being with us. Therese Raphael is Bloomberg Opinion Editor covering European politics and economics. Joining us from London, you can follow Therese on Twitter at Therese Raphael one Well, it was supposed to be a done deal. Uh, AT&T and its uh, purchase of uh, Time Warner for more than $107 billion. Uh, the deal was actually completed in June, but uh, the Department of Justice may have other thoughts. Here to tell us more is Marianne Halford, a global media and entertainment strategist at OC&C Strategy Consultants. Marianne, thank you very much for being with us. Can you just explain to people, I mean, you know, you try to look up what Time Warner shares are doing, and you note that, of course, they don't exist anymore because the deal has already closed. Is this unprecedented? Why would they do this? Good question. Um, I think this is a long shot. I think this, though, bespeaks uh, an attitude or a new attitude towards vertical mergers coming out of the Trump Justice Department. And um, 
clearly they don't want to give up a fight here, even though it is a major long shot. I think it's highly unlikely that they'll be able to prevail here. Uh, I point to the general counsel's statement yesterday. The court's decision could hardly have been more thorough, fact-based, and well-reasoned, even in an appeals court, although I guess um, they're hoping that some of the liberal judges that may be ruling on this uh, might uh, give in to some Uh, concerns about higher prices, I still think it's going to be a long shot. I think this has more to do with um, Comcast (laughs) at the end of the day in a certain way. Um, We know Mr. Trump is, or President Trump, that is, is uh, um, a good... uh, Friend of Mr. Murdoch's. We know Mr. Murdoch uh, would very much like to be acquired by Disney, not Comcast. Um, this is definitely a warning bell, if you will, to Comcast um, about um, them uh, continuing their fight to try to pursue Fox. Um, that's one of the things I'm musing right, this well, morning. Okay, well, so Marianne, there, there are two sides to this. There's the legal mm-hmm. case, and yes. then there's sort of uh, who is sort of calling the shots with respect to the Justice Department's decisions here? Uh, there was some kind of conspiracy talk that perhaps the appeal was done specifically to get uh, to the appeals court in Washington, D.C., where Brett Kavanaugh, the nominee for the Supreme Court, sits. Um, do you do you buy any of these arguments or do you think that the president is personally involved or do you think that this is just purely uh, a sort of issue with vertical mergers? You know, in this administration, one never really knows. Um, I can't imagine that the president wasn't involved in this decision. Um, I just can't imagine that he wasn't. Um, And, you know, it it is unprecedented uh, to see uh, a Justice Department going after vertical mergers. It's very interesting that the uh, Disney-Fox merger sailed through the Justice Department, a horizontal merger, which is generally um, challenged. Vertical mergers are not necessarily challenged. Um, I think, you know, these are players in the media specter, and Mr. Trump likes the media world, and he likes to be a big voice. So I can't imagine that he wasn't involved in this decision. Could you just expand a little bit more on what you mean by uh, this having to do with Comcast and its bid sure. for the assets of uh, 21st Century Fox? And now we learn, of course, that they have increased their bid for Sky Broadcasting, right. the uh, British uh, pay TV operator. Right. Again. I don't have any data to support this. This is just my hunch and my speculation here. And I've also talked to other friends in the industry who also think the same. Um, We know that the Murdoch Trust or the Murdoch family has definitely shown a preference to the Disney uh, merger, which is a horizontal merger. Um, A Comcast uh, Fox deal would be a vertical merger. Um, Clearly, one of their statements back in December um, when the initial Disney deal uh, was done, uh, they said that they did not favor a Comcast deal because of the concerns as it relates to uh, 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 regulatory risk. Um, We knew that Comcast held off making a formal bid until after the AT&T decision came down. Uh, Within 24 hours, Comcast did enter into the bidding war, but Comcast would be a vertical buyer. So I I just think the timing is interesting, Um, and particularly given that I think it's still going to be a tough, tough fight to get this overturned. 
Um, it just so I, I, I'm really looking at the other timing going on in the market. I do think we'll see Comcast really fight hard to get Sky. Um, yeah. I think I think Comcast needs Sky, um, and that's probably going to be where they shift their focus right now. Thirty seconds. Is it common practice for the president to insert uh, him or herself into the uh, tr- anti-trade decisions of the Justice Department? Well, his name wasn't referenced here. Um, these are all people that report to him. But again, I'm just speculating that he no, no. Probably, probably... I'm just has. wondering whether that's common for administrations to have a more a very direct role in deciding antitrust policy. Not generally. Uh, not generally. I mean, we have seen it at certain points in history. Certainly back in the 60s, there were a few decisions, um, particularly, I think, believe uh, related to uh, some steel mergers. Um, there have been some as related to security concerns yeah. um, for the United States. But I think in a case like this, it's very unusual. Marianne Halford, thank you so much for being with us. Marianne Halford, global media and entertainment strategist for OCNC Strategy Consultants in New York. AT&T shares responding uh, to the Department of Justice's decision uh, to appeal the uh, the uh, the decision that they had with shares down two percent. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg PL podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Pim Fox. I'm on Twitter at Pim Fox. I'm on Twitter at Lisa Abramowitz1. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.